if moving to a full battery EV is too scary for you or too impractical, and going again with internal combustion is suddenly too philosophically filthy, then perhaps the BMW 330e plug-in hybrid can bridge this gap. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Holiday weekend too, can you tell? Website for that, obviously, or you can just click the card that's up there now, dude. This car is dead interesting right now because you can run it as a battery only EV most days. You know, you can take the kids to school and go for coffee and go to the shops and commute between your home and your office in the city. And then when you get home, you just plug it in again, like your laptop and your phone and whatever else in your digital life, right? And then one night you might decide tomorrow to drive from Sydney to Brisbane or Melbourne to Sydney or something and no logistic planning whatsoever is gonna be required because you just get in and go the whole way on petrol, which is kind of a one-size-fits-all solution and very different to the style of regenerative braking only hybrid favored by Toyota slash Lexus. So plug-in hybrid, what does that even mean really for you? Like, in practice. It strikes me that a great many people, perhaps even you, you want a hybrid because it's the right thing to do. It seems like the green option and it's going to save you some fuel and you want a hybrid next. And I get that. I understand it completely. But at the same time, do you really know the difference between a conventional hybrid and a plug-in hybrid? And where do these two things sit on the broader spectrum between internal combustion and battery electric vehicle? And if you don't know all of that stuff, at least the broad brush strokes of it, how are you really to make an informed decision about the right next new vehicle for you? So with that in mind, let's get on the same page here with all of that stuff. And when I was training to be an engineer at university, they taught us that, you know, designing a nuclear reactor tomorrow morning is kind of a bit hard. And it's much better if you break it down into its systems and then work on the systems and then integrate those systems together. So let's do that with vehicles. The car that you rode around in as a kid was probably internal combustion engine powered. It had a propulsion system, which is the internal combustion engine, okay? It had an energy storage system, which is the fuel tank. And it had a means of replenishing the energy when you run out, which is you tip in liquid hydrocarbons through a pipe. And that's basically how the car functions systematically. And let's not forget, its function is just to be a metal box that takes people from A to B, okay? And they do that pretty well. A battery electric vehicle, incidentally, is systematically very similar to the car that you grew up with, all right? It's just 
different in the details. Instead of an internal combustion engine, the propulsion system is an electric motor and the energy storage system is still kind of a fuel tank. We call them batteries and they don't hold liquids, they hold electrons. And there's a replenishment system as well, which is you plug them in and recharge in the manner of your mobile phone or something. Okay, you can use grid type electricity or you can use your solar array on the roof. Same difference, okay? One of them's probably greener than the other. And then there's this neat hack with energy management called regenerative braking, which is a supplemental way of replenishing the battery. So just look at it like this. When you're coasting up to a red light or going down a really, really steep hill or something, you can use the system in reverse because when you're using it to drive the car forward and power the car forward, electrons come out of the battery, energy comes out of the battery, goes into the motor and turns into tractive effort at the wheels. But when you don't need tractive effort, when you're off the accelerator, that whole system can be used in reverse, okay? In the way that it cannot be used in reverse in an internal combustion powered vehicle. The electric motor can be driven by the wheels and when it does that it turns into a generator which creates fresh electrons, if you like, and pumps them back into the battery. So this is something philosophically that internal combustion can only dream of and you lose all of that braking energy in internal combustion. You hit the brakes, turns it into heat, it's gone. It's not disappeared, it's not like a violation of the first law of thermodynamics or anything. You just don't ever get to use that energy again because it is separated from the vehicle and bled out as heat into the environment. You can catch some of it in a battery electric vehicle and that is a really neat hack with energy when you think about it. A conventional hybrid is what you get when you combine those two systems under the one roof in the one body shell. In a conventional hybrid, you've got an internal combustion engine and a fuel tank and you tip liquid hydrocarbons in and that is the main propulsion source. This is a conventional hybrid, not the plug-in, okay? And you've also got an electric propulsion system but it does a small amount of propelling the car. It's really just there to perform that energy management hack that we talked about. So it catches energy via regenerative braking and it gives it back to you to assist with propulsion in a minor but sort of significant way so that you can actually lunch off that which you would otherwise have lost in an internal combustion car, all right? The function of the hybrid, the electric side of the hybrid system is really mainly energy management and assistance, okay? But plug-in hybrids, while they're systematically very similar, philosophically, they are considerably different. A plug-in hybrid is so similar systematically, like schematically. They look almost the same. The differences are you get a much bigger electric motor, which can hypothetically play a much greater role in the propulsion of the vehicle. It's not just catching energy that you would otherwise lose and giving it back to you. What it's doing in addition to that is you are plugging it into the mains, okay? It's got a bigger battery that you can recharge overnight and it can therefore drive a bigger motor and give you more power, more propulsion, more tractive effort. That's really how this differs, okay? The electrical side of a plug-in hybrid is more significant than it is with a conventional hybrid. And that makes a big difference to 
EV-only operational modes with vehicles like this, okay? You're still doing the regenerative braking, the mad voodoo with energy management is still happening, and that is still a tangible advantage every time you drive a plug-in hybrid. But you're also getting this extra electric energy that can be stored in the bigger battery that you can tip in overnight from an extraneous source. I spent a week driving the 330E and I mainly just drove it around town like an owner would over Easter. I did get out on the highway a couple of times and I plugged it in at home to the mains and I recharged the battery twice. So on dynamics and comfort and luxury, it's a three series, meaning very good. Driver focused cockpit, excellent rear drive dynamics, great steering and ride, Bit of a learning curve, I suppose, if you've never used the latest iteration of the BMW user interface, because it is quite detailed and you can drill down so far. But ultimately, that just means this car is very configurable to your preferences. And you can store those preferences in your key, which is superb if this is a two-driver vehicle, especially if those drivers have grossly different operational preferences. Whichever key is approaching the car, you know, the car just detects that and as well as unlock and disarm the engine and all of that conventional stuff, it also invokes all of your preferences. So you don't need to worry about changing any of that if the other driver's just been in the car before you. The ergonomics are stellar too. You get a nice fat wheel, excellent shifter operation and again there's a bit of a learning curve with that shifter but once you cross this bridge it is so much better than a conventional automatic shifter. There are impossibly comfortable and supportive front seats as well and the list goes on we could dwell and gush all day but if I were to be a hypercritical prick and hey let's play to one's strengths momentarily when you transition from only just moving to dead stopped that transition is a little bit less refined than it could be that kinetic friction to static friction transition on the brakes I think they should work on that unless there's a really good reason that the brakes need to be tweaked like that like needs to do six fast stops on the autobahn or something. I don't know. But all BMWs tend to be a bit touchy like that going from kinetic to static friction, and I don't know why. A 3 Series is kind of bigger than a small car too, and perversely smaller than a big car. At least that's how it presents itself to me. Quite a family-friendly proposition, but I would say that the boot is a bit small for two really young kids meaning their gear, dude. Like, I'm not suggesting that you put your two toddlers in the boot and it's a bit cosy back there or something. That would be irresponsible. And also, <coughs> I think you'd agree, somewhat creepy. And for more tips like this, visit my other website, parentingexpert.com. New instrument cluster, okay? That flat screen LCD thing. Take it or leave it. It's completely subjective. I am an old analog fart, you know? deep down, but you might love it, and that's allowed. It is absolutely dripping in information, and it changes colour with the drive modes, and it even has a minimalist mode that you can invoke in the menus if you want just the basics, okay? So that's kind of nice, and you can project the nav between the speedo and the taco. I'm not going to focus too much on all of this stuff today because all of that is as you would expect, and it's more or less common to the 3, 4, and 5 series range. BMW is, however, very serious about its ultimate driving machine mantra, and they did not drop the ball with this one, okay? One point of difference is that the 330E is in fact made in Germany versus Mexico. 
for the rest of the 3 Series range, except the M3, of course, which is obviously German-made. As for competitors, if you look at the Lexus IS300H, you only get about 2 kilometres of EV, like battery EV driving range, on a good day with, you know, the wind blowing in the right direction. And that's because the Lexus is not a plug-in hybrid, and there's only so much energy you can recoup using regenerative braking. So that means smaller battery, smaller electric powertrain, less EV range. The little engine that couldn't, more often than not in that case, but it will save you some fuel, so there's that. The three-pronged suppository has a competitor in this range as well, the C300E, which has a more powerful 155-kilowatt 2.0-litre turbo 4 and a 13.5-kilowatt-hour battery with a slightly more powerful electric motor. It's also line-ball on price with the 330E, and it carries 10 litres more fuel, but it's made in South Africa. So... In summary, the C300E has about 15% more internal combustion engine performance and about 30% more electrons in the tank of the battery, metaphorically. But owning a three-pronged suppository does tend to be something of a roll of the dice, and this would be a main reservation of mine about buying one of those, because if something does go wrong, and these cars are quite complex, that's you. It's kind of like you requesting humanitarian aid from the Death Star. Like, dude, it's cheaper just to incinerate the planet, right? George Lucas made that abundantly clear. <coughs> Think you'd agree. Anyway, BMW tends actually to treat you like a customer if you are in this position. So that's a point of difference. And hey, it should not be, but it is. One of the really interesting things about plug-in hybrids is everyone thinks in terms of being green and saving fuel and all of that stuff, but you can also use plug-in hybrid electric for performance, like additional performance. The 330E has about the same overall performance as a 330i, and the internal combustion side of a 330e is about the same as a 320i. In fact, the engine tune appears to be exactly the same. So when you add the electrical side of the drivetrain, you can add performance as well. And this is kind of really interesting to me when you select sport mode, which turns the dashboard red to tell you you're in sport mode, and it changes the operational characteristics of many of the car's systems, like the change points on the transmission and the throttle response and things of that nature. But it also does one really interesting thing that does not appear to occur in other driving modes, which is that instead of just doing mains recharging overnight and regenerative braking, which we've already been through, it seems to me, observing the operation of sport mode in that car, that it's also getting electrical energy from the vehicle's alternator and tipping it into the battery. And the reason for doing that is to keep the battery topped up for when you want maximum performance. Like, when you want maximum performance, you want maximum power, because power equals acceleration. It's a pretty simple concept, okay? And to get maximum power out of a hybrid electric vehicle, you need maximum power from the internal combustion side and maximum power from the electric motor side. And you can only kind of achieve that if the battery's reasonably topped up so that it can do its maximum delivery, okay? That's kind of important. And... It's interesting to me that BMW does this because 
there's two ways to look at it, right? It's a good news, bad news thing when you look at it thermodynamically. It's a good news thing when you want performance because you've always got enough juice in the battery to give you the attractive performance from the motor, which gives you overall maximum power when you combine these two. So that's fantastic. But when you look at it like an engineer, there's this problem called the second law of thermodynamics, which really is a bastard. It's a bastard for the universe and it's a bastard for just about every physical process, like every industrial process, every process that you experience from refrigeration to propulsion to, I don't know, just everything is kicked in the nuts by the second law of thermodynamics. And there's a kind of technical description for that which says that in a closed system, the entropy increases in the time domain. Like in a system with a boundary that energy and work can't enter or leave via, okay? What does that mean? It means that every time you do a process, you get less available energy. So it's a spectacularly inefficient way to top up the battery, to take liquid hydrocarbons from a fuel tank and run them through an internal combustion engine, process number one, and then drive a pulley, process number two, you know, and then drive an alternator to make electricity conversion of mechanical rotation into electricity, process number three, and then recharge the battery, process number four, like Jesus. It's a really inefficient way to manufacture anything, but in sport mode, do you really care about efficiency? And I guess the answer is no, okay? What you want is performance. So the system is configured for maximum performance in sport mode, and I guess I was just interested to see that philosophically they went down this track, because most hybrids champion the green sort of option and the fuel-saving option, and this one, where you're using electrons from the alternator to keep the battery juiced up for maximum performance. This is anything but that. But let me tell you, when you're driving it in sport mode, it's quite uplifting. Turning a 320i into a 330e is not without a considerable weight penalty. All up, it adds 300 kilos of additional mass, which would be all the wiring, the battery, the motor generator, the inverter, an onboard charger. All of this stuff adds up, and it's kind of not negotiable. And packaging it all into that vehicle appears to have compromised the fuel tank capacity, which is down to 40 litres. The tank capacity is 59 litres in the other three series models, okay? You also lose about 100 litres of floor space because the floor on the cargo bay has to come up to package the battery. So the bottom line, I guess, is that the 330e will offer you about the same level of dynamic performance as a 330i, provided the battery in the e is full. But it's going to cost you eight grand more, and that's easy to see why, because none of that extra hardware is free. The dynamic performance is not going to be quite as good, and the vehicle is a lot more complex. On the total range, you might expect, BMW talks about this 1800 kilometer thing, you know, up to 1800 kilometers. But there must be some very specific and I assume unrealistic operational parameters used to achieve that theoretical range. Like in practice, you will probably get about six liters per 100 kilometers. So you could call it 650 Ks on a tank of hydrocarbons plus 40 or 50 Ks from a full battery. If you drive really gently without being some sort of OCD hypermiler about it, you might get 700 Ks out of a full tank and a full battery. 
BMW says you can achieve up to 60 kilometers of battery EV only driving mode, but with the air conditioning on and other optional systems activated, it's going to be more like 45, which is more than enough for most daily commutes. The first time I plugged in and charged up at home, the battery computer on the car told me that we had 46 kilometers of EV range to exploit. So 46 kilometers times 365 days a year is about 17,000 Ks, which is above average mileage for Australian cars pre-COVID. Many people could hypothetically do nearly all of their driving in EV mode, except for long trips, right? But there is a big fat caveat on all of this. And here's an example to illustrate this point. It features an electric motor and battery pack for up to 60 kilometers of pure EV propulsion before a four-cylinder turbo petrol engine kicks in. That's a quote from Byron Matthew Darkus when he reviewed the 330E in Cars Guide last year. Okay, and I've got to take issue with that. Now, Byron's a good bloke and a very good motoring journalist, but that to me seems like a bit of press kit paraphrasing, and the press kit is obviously dumbed down so that everyone will get it. And this, in particular, is an issue that is oversimplified to the point of being misinformation, or at the very least, disingenuous, because... It's not just a case of deplete the battery and then internal combustion. It doesn't work like that. The battery is a storage system for energy, okay? And when you drive, you discharge it. That's what they mean when they talk about discharge rates. You're driving, you're sucking energy out of the battery, you're discharging it, okay? But what you're really taking out of the battery is power. And power and energy are related, but they're not the same thing. When you use energy quickly, you discharge the battery quickly, you're generating more power, okay? So power has a time component. It's actually the time rate of usage of energy in this case, all right? And this system is designed to deliver 50 kilowatts of power more or less continuously, but there's also an extra boost mode that will allow you to get 80 kilowatts out of it for up to 10 seconds, okay? And that's because discharge equals heat equals kills the battery prematurely, and you have to protect against that. So you can have a lot of power quickly, or you can have somewhat less power, more or less continuously, and still thermally manage the battery for longevity. That's how this works, okay? It's called the duty cycle, and it's a critical sort of aspect of battery management. And you might say to yourself that, well, 50 kilowatts doesn't seem like a lot of power because I'm used to driving an internal combustion car with 200 kilowatts or 150 kilowatts or something like that. So it really isn't that much in that context. But I'd have to say to you, how often are you using the maximum power of your internal combustion engine? And how hard is it to drive down the road at 100 k's an hour? And that's something you've done, right, many times. And many people fall into this trap of thinking it's really hard work for the car, and I'd have to say, dude, it's not. So just to spitball this and put it in perspective and prove it to you, if you've got an inline-four engine that makes 150 kilowatts, pretty common, and you're doing 100 k's on the freeway or something, you look down at the taco, what are you doing? About 2,000 RPM or something? And then you think about your right foot. How hard is it really planted, right? not very hard in the context of full throttle. It's way back here. And I'd suggest you're driving at something like one quarter of the throttle. So you're using about one third of the maximum revs and about one quarter of the throttle. And the power production of your engine 
is roughly proportional to the revs, roughly, and roughly proportional to how wide open the throttle is. So if you look at your 150 kilowatts and you take a third of the revs and a quarter of the throttle and you multiply them all together, 12.5 kilowatts, dude. And even if I'm way off the pace here and it's more like 20 kilowatts, that'd be pretty conservative. And let's say you need another 15 kilowatts to run the systems, you know, to energize the CAN bus and run the HVAC and, you know, all of that stuff. Then you're really only drawing 35 kilowatts of a maximum 150 out of the engine cruising down the freeway at 100. So if you've got to get on the freeway and do 80 or 100 or something for 10Ks to get to work, you can easily do this within the 50 kilowatt envelope of EV operation is what I'm saying, okay? And if you were to do that, it would be a case of discharge the battery, then internal combustion, absolutely. But there's another case that's not quite so clear cut, but it happens all the time in driving. Let's say you need to get off the mark quickly or you just want to. Let's say you're going uphill and you want to get around a truck and you're stuck behind a truck at 40 and you want to overtake it about 80 or 100 or something and you don't have much time to do that because of the geometry of the road or an oncoming vehicle or something of that nature. Then what you do is you demand more performance from the car. And the way you tell the powertrain of your demand is you do that with your foot, you flatten your foot, right? It's really a demand thing. And the powertrain's job is to supply the right performance to match the demand that you have requested from the powertrain, right? So in this second case where we've got demand that exceeds these performance limits, then obviously the internal combustion engine is going to kick in. And you should realize that because I've spoken to plenty of people who just don't get this about plug-in hybrids, okay? And what they think is no matter how they drive, they're doing the first 60 Ks on electric power and only then are they using gasoline, right? But if you are driving like a cut cat, okay, guaranteed you are in internal combustion plus EV mode. That's just how this works. It's how it has to work. So the first 60 Ks and then internal combustion is only if you're driving as if Miss Daisy is in the back. Recharging the battery at home takes about six hours from dead flat if you use a 10 amp conventional domestic outlet, a PowerPoint. I also tried using my wall mounted 7.7 .7 kilowatt EV recharger, which has the same plug into the car. And that time dropped to three and a half hours. So with some basic mathematics on that, it means that on a standard 10 amp wall outlet, which is using about 2.4 kilowatts, that jumps up to about four kilowatts if you use a more powerful charger. And it seems like the internal charger on that vehicle is maxed out at four kilowatts. And obviously the maximum recharging rate is tailored around thermal management and battery longevity because batteries are very sensitive to being overheated on recharge or discharge and they need to manage that. The battery itself is very big for a hybrid or small if you're talking in the context of a battery only EV. It's 10.5 kilowatt hours, which is a lot of electrical energy. I wouldn't want to be close by when that gets discharged rapidly all around me, you know. Electricity costs about 26 cents per kilowatt hour if you shop around. So the recharge each night, if that's how you roll, is going to be about two bucks sixty. 
Not that you care, obviously, because you are dropping the best part of a hundred grand on a car, right? But it is cheaper to operate like that than petrol. The standard recharging cable is about five meters long and it comes in a bag with these helpful instructions in case you've never actually put a bag in the boot of a car before. And the cable comes with these impossibly elegant and even more helpful instructions and precautions in case you've never actually plugged anything electrical into a wall outlet before. So that's comprehensive. Thanks, BMW. But when I consider that cable in that bag, frankly, when I look at the overarching commitment to elegance and design sophistication elsewhere in this car, and I am being quite sincere here, seemingly no stone has been left unturned to make this car beautiful. It just gobsmacks me that the recharging cable is so impossibly inelegant. I mean, even the key on this car is a friggin' work of art, but the recharging cable, something you will use potentially most days, it just looks like an explosion in a Russian cable factory. Like, Jesus. Are we seriously suggesting that this is the best design execution that a team of BMW's best industrial design brainiacs can come up with? And yet, I fully appreciate that cables carrying 2.4 kilowatts of alternating current really should not be coiled when in use because of the induction, right? We wouldn't want that. But come on, dudes, at least make it look nice. Like, go over and talk to Apple. Yeah, I know, it's a different car. Hey, shoot me, occupational hazard, right? I've already given the 330E back and the M550i was the best I had. Anyway, one of the most confronting things I think about buying any car is the nature of the purchasing event, right? It's like such a marathon. It's designed to suck out your soul and leave you a withered husk, basically. And you go down this track, this marathon track, and you can sniff the final destination after several hours of having your soul hooked up to some big Dyson or something. And then there's a final bridge that you have to cross, right? And it's a really high bridge and it's really rickety. It's several hundred feet above the rocks and the crashing waves just down there and there's ravenous sharks and Scott Morrison is waiting to greet you when you finally get there down the bottom. So all the bad shit is down there and you want to avoid stumbling on this one. And it is, of course, the bridge of options. And with a prestige car, okay, the options game is not like with a mainstream car. Even an expensive mainstream car, like a Hyundai Santa Fe Highlander or Kia Sorento GT line or something of that nature, right? There is so much optional crap with prestige cars. So this is either hilarious or confronting, depending on whether you're actually playing the game or just playing a fantasy game like we are now. And I'd love to tell you that I can keep all this crap in my head, but... I have to refer to my notes for this, so please just bear with me because the list is just incredulous. It's so incredulous I can almost hardly believe it. Any colour but solid white, okay? It's going to cost you like two grand. Two grand for the premium paint, alright? And perhaps you will tick this box because solid white would not appeal to many people. And then there's 
the comfort package, okay, which is basically his and hers electric heated front seats and the driver has electric lumbar support and mine had that in as much as it was mine and it was very nice indeed for a week. I picked it up, you know, very clean and full of fuel and brought it back filthy and empty as demanded by the motoring journalist Code of Ethics, but those seats were extremely nice. The lumbar support, 13 points out of a possible 10, very nice indeed, but you get the power boot as well because obviously opening and closing the boot manually, you know, $2,080 for all of that, the comfort package. Then there's the Harman Kardon premium audio, which is going to cost you 1250 bucks, which is a little bit more than a hundred bucks each for each of the 16 speakers, okay? And then there's a visibility package, and just with a name like that, I want it. I want to go, yeah, dude, visibility package. Count me in, okay? That includes ambient lighting, which is quite nice. You can tweak the color all around the car for nighttime driving. You can suit your mood or whatever, you know? Uh, you get metallic paints, so there's two grand off, if you like to think of it like that, because the metallic paint's gonna cost you two grand anyway. Then there's an electric sunroof, okay, and laser headlamps, which use actual lasers. They shine laser onto some particularly special material, I forget what, but it is actually a case of the marketing department saying laser headlamps with some integrity because actual laser beams are harmed in the process. So that's nice. And this whole thing is gonna cost you $5,330 to $6,500 depending on which exterior trim you choose for the car because of the way they mix and match it, okay? Uh, then there's the BMW M seat belts, all right? With complimentary personal lubricant, as I understand it, free refills at the dealership, like uh, that would be if the world were perfect, and hey, I know it's not, but... A man can dream about that, and in this case, the dream will cost you only $560. So put me down for that, and we're about a third of the way through this list of options, bingo basics. Acoustic glazing is going to cost you 400 bucks. Now, most cars are pretty good sound booths anyway. They're good acoustic attenuators, but if you want just that little bit more, only 400 bucks for that sun protection glazing. Now I find this one really interesting because that's only 800 bucks. And the pro tip there, okay, if you're concerned about the sun on your skin and melanoma, because we do live in the land of melanoma, present climate notwithstanding, then a laminated windscreen is actually really good at blocking UV radiation, okay? Because the polycarbonate laminate in between the two glass layers on the outside and the inside respectively is a really good UV attenuator. But the side glass, completely different story and it's all over the place and there's really no legislated standard for that. And the transmissibility of UV radiation through the side glass varies widely. It varies from about 50% to almost 100%. So if you get a good one and how the hell would you know because you can't see it and it's pretty hard to measure without specialist equipment that costs you more than sun protection glazing, then you know 50% to almost 100% and I'd be ticking that box. The thing that really gobsmacks me here is that we all expect there to be regulatory standards for this and that, things that matter, and in the case of, you know, side glass in cars, 
there is none vis-a-vis UV protection. And there's really no way of knowing because manufacturers don't say. So out of all these options, I think I'd be ticking the 800 buck box for UV protection glazing. There's that. Instrument panel in Sensatech. Now, I want it just for the name Sensatech. In fact, I want a jumpsuit in Sensatech, like a John Travolta Saturday Night Fever jumpsuit in tangerine Sensatech with a big plunging neckline and flares. <laughs> I don't know why. That's going to cost you 1250 bucks, not for the jumpsuit, for the instrument panel in Sensatech. And uh, we are two-thirds of the way through. Options, bingo. I'm feeling like we're winning. Now, tyre pressure monitors. This is an interesting thing as well, right? Because 550 bucks for that, not a big spend. But when you buy a 330E, it does not come with any kind of spare tyre. You get run flats. And essentially, run flats work like this, all right? You can run on them when you get a flat for a limited distance at a reduced speed, but they're quite expensive to replace. And after you run on them like that, they are throwaways. So I don't know why tyre pressure monitoring is not standard on that car because it would be a real benefit and it seems like this would be a not negotiable kind of thing that should be offered because of the cost of replacement if you unwittingly run on a flat tyre. Anyway, 550 bucks for that. There's a bunch of trim options as well and we are kind of at the end of this list. but. Just think about all those things we just discussed, okay? If you think about it like fantasy options bingo or something, how much did we just spend? Got any idea? Well, unoptioned, right? A 330E is about 93,000 bucks on the road, and we just spent 12,000 bucks in fantasy options, believe it or not, right? So we're talking about pumping the price up to more than $105,000 if you just keep ticking the boxes. And this is of course why you have to walk into a dealership with the ceramic plates in your vest front and rear. Because no matter how polite and genteel this process is, you go in with a budget in mind, okay? Because to some extent at least you are a rational thinker. And you say to yourself, yeah, mid-80s is kind of where I'm at. And then you sit down opposite the sales dude and he kind of goes, sir or madam, that's before on road costs, which is going to pump up the price to about 93,000 bucks. And you go, okay, because in premium car land, the people who buy premium prestige sorts of cars generally have a bit of flexibility in the budget. And you say to yourself, yeah, okay, I can, I want this car. Like I really want it and I can dig a bit deeper, 10 grand, okay. And then you play options bingo, okay? And it can be another 12, and then you can be up over $100,000. And this is because obviously, the car dealer wants to get you in the door. And the easiest way to get you in the door is with the expectation of a price point down here, even if it's a relatively high price point relative to mainstream cars, okay? But then the game is to get you up and up and up and up and get you to keep saying uh-huh 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 until the Dyson connected to your bank account sucks on a dry tank okay that's why it's adversarial okay it can be polite and friendly but it's fundamentally adversarial and my strong advice to you is to stick up for yourself in this situation and learn when to say no. Go in with a game plan. Definitely review the available options before you sit opposite the sales dude and decide exactly what you want. Because hey, it could save you thousands.
face-to-face at the dealership, you know, in the heat of the battle or something, it is, of course, somewhat easy to get carried away with all those goodies. People obsess in the planning as well. Like, they make friggin' spreadsheets about this stuff. Must have these wheels and the Sensatec jumpsuit. <laughs> and the lube sounds nice, so I might get those seatbelts after all. Because it's fun to stay at the YMCA. Can't stop the music like nobody can, dude. But I would suggest that if you're a bit more flexible with the hair and makeup for your particular 330E or, frankly, any other prestige car, just ask the sales dude what the dealer has in stock. Because BMW tends to order the most popular combinations of all of those goodies direct from the factory, and that's what the dealers tend to keep in stock. And when a dealer takes delivery of a car from BMW or any other car maker, he owns that car, okay? And that's kind of a problem because owning it costs him money and there is an imperative to sell and a consequential level of motivation to discount, which will not be forthcoming if you order a bespoke build from the factory. So you have to ask yourself, how badly do you want your bespoke combination? If you want a good deal, just look for one that's in stock, which more or less meets your requirements, okay? You might not get the tangerine Sensatec jumpsuit of your dreams or something, but you might get almost everything else, and perhaps that's good enough. Sometimes, in the case of the jumpsuit particularly, less really is more, right? And finally, I guess, who should buy this car and who should not? The 330i is frankly a better choice if all you want is this level of driving performance. It's like eight grand cheaper and it goes about the same or it goes a lot better if the battery in the 330e is dead flat when you pull out to overtake. So there's that. People with 80 to 100 grand to spend on a car really don't care about the cost of fuel. So in my mind, fuel saving is a poor argument, a poor justification. And anyway, spending eight grand more on a car to start saving money on fuel is economically absurd in any case. At least I can't justify it rationally. So my take on this is the 330E is Cinderella's friggin' slipper for you if you mainly drive in the city and you do occasional longer drives and you want a smallish large premium sedan or a largish small one. And on those longer drives, you don't want to be obsessed with regional EV charging locations and range limitations and calculating all of that out and the logistic management of all that crap, okay? I say this because presently, regional EV recharging infrastructure in Australia is inadequate for battery-only EV operation over long distances, widespread, okay, except on select routes like the busiest highways, the Hume and the Pacific, for example they're kind of okay. Everywhere else regional is a bit hit and miss. Of course, if you own a business or you've got some sort of social footprint where environmental responsibility and accountability is important and the perception of that really matters to you or your followers or customers, then the 330E is a pretty luxurious conveyance and a reasonably speedy way to enjoy a car that conforms to those imperatives. Like you can roll up in the general manager's car parking space of your solar photovoltaic business in your 330E and you will not look like a total fraud, okay? Quite the opposite. You could even plug in 
and make it very apparent that you are running this car off the sun. In any case, right, 46 k's a day in EV mode is more than sufficient for most people to honour some kind of commitment to clearing up the air in our cities. And this really matters because pollution kills more people prematurely than car crashes. And most people do not know this, right? In my view, making some personal commitment to clearing urban air is a pretty decent and also socially altruistic reason to spend the extra eight grand and own a car such as this. And it does not involve the inherent compromises that you will get if you buy a battery-only EV. The cynic in me, of course, also wants to point out that many places like shopping malls and things of that nature that deal with the public on a large scale basis, there's a Mervac one on Broadway in Sydney that does exactly this, and they are not alone. To display their green credentials, right, which is kind of hard if you're a shopping mall, they've installed these complimentary EV chargers. And obviously the concept is they stick out like the balls on a big black canine and you can park, plug in and recharge for free and then go upstairs and blow all of your disposable income. Yes. And of course these parking spaces, they're not buried down the back in the basement, are they? They're right up the front, close to the snack bar, so to speak. They are there for maximum visual impact. So if you buy a car such as this, you can always find yourself a front row seat in a place such as that. And this preferential parking for the virtuous and green kind of trend is likely to accelerate. And your new 330E is guaranteed to make you a member of Club Virtue. Yes. I cannot wait for them to install that in my favourite gentleman's club in King's Cross. The one high up in the penthouse, high above the Coke sign. Head in the clouds, quite exclusive. You've probably heard of it. Very highbrow as these places go. You might as well milk it, dude, like in your 330E is what I'm saying. You're wearing the friggin' jumpsuit. You went for the special seatbelts. You've got the lube. It's no fun if nobody sees you getting in and out like that.